want to welcome you to this church if you're joining online or for those of you, all those enjoying those, that new section up there in the balcony. Good job for you folks up there. That's good. We got more seating up there for people as well. Uh, I invite you this morning, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, is where we can be going to. The Lord has ministered to our hearts. The Lord has ministered to my heart, which I hope is the case for you this morning already. And we, we look for our Lord to continue to feed us in His Word, which is where we turn our attention to now in Luke chapter 1. Abby and I are so blessed to be able to give alongside of you. Uh, it was just this week that our church was able to be in contact with a family in the community. Uh, that, and there is involved in this whole situation a two-year-old boy that uh, otherwise would not be able to get any Christmas presents. So we're able to help with that. And it was also, first and foremost, a platform from which our church was able to share the gospel with this family. So what a good thing it is that we can be a part of a church that is about the mission that God has called us for. I am really excited for the new year. Can you believe that's just around the corner for us? That is coming really, really soon. The new year is just around the corner, and I'm very excited for it. Uh, I maybe perhaps didn't even say thank you enough uh, for, if you remember this past summer, I was on sabbatical, and that time of rest that I believe has begun a good trajectory for me in learning how to rest has perhaps given way to some vision that I'm excited to share with you and and uh, just some passion for the Lord that is as a result of being well rested in the scriptures and all these kinds of things. And, and I'm excited to share a whole bunch of those things with you when we get to the new year, but just to kind of give you a heads up of the kinds of things that I'm talking about, some of the ministries that we'll be able to be more intentional with and focused with, for example, Operation Christmas Child, uh, that has been just a wonderful success over these past few years. Uh, but this year we'll be looking to actually only do boxes for the age bracket that typically gets the least amount of boxes, which is that oldest age range of kids. We're going to do nothing but that this year. And I'm very thankful for the ladies that are overseeing that. They're doing a wonderful job and their organization is incredible for that. And uh, other things, uh, Kyle will be coming on full time with the new year to help us in these ministry efforts. Uh, as well as getting Eldon and Kyle ordained as pastors in this church so they can help do some marrying and burying around here. So hopefully more marrying than burying. But with a number of kids in here, it's like it's just, it's, the, the clock is ticking until we're going to be doing a whole bunch of weddings even more than we've done over these past years. So, uh, But in this great season of blessing for us as a church, and even particularly this season of Christmas, it's enough for us to turn our affections to our Savior and reverence His Word as we always do together. So let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, Jesus, we, we are now here to open Your Word and for, to be fed as Your people, as the flock of Your field. Uh, Jesus, we love You and You're a good shepherd uh, in all of the areas of life that we are confused or discouraged. None of those things have come from You having been poor to us. Uh, Jesus, we are in a sin-cursed reality of which you've broken the back and power of. And for this reason, we are thankful to be your people. And our affections are growing for you in your word. And we love you so much in Jesus' name. And the church says. So if you practice uh, martial arts, the instructors will have you practice very, very basic movements. Tens of times, hundreds of times, thousands of times, tens of thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of times. Uh, you will practice very basic movements over and over and over again. 
And the reason for this is there's this understanding in martial arts that very complicated techniques and movements are simply a succession of simpler ones put into, in a stream together. And so for this reason, in, in the practice of martial arts and learning all the things that are taught in karate and taekwondo and obviously not anything with reference to Eastern spiritualism whatsoever, but it simply is a means of exercise and self-defense, the things in which you'll learn and you'll see students that will then go to try a very complex technique. And if they fail, as is almost every time the case, uh, the instructors will say some, there's been a breakdown somewhere with some of the basic movements. So they'll go back and break it down and begin to practice again these very, very basic movements of martial arts. Uh, I, like most preachers, love preaching about Christmas. I almost can't think of anything I love more than preaching about the Christmas story. But there is sometimes an apprehension that preachers have when it comes to preaching the Christmas stories because it's incredibly familiar. It's like a basic movement in martial art. It's something that many of us have done. We've studied it numerous times. We know the story of the star and the wise men and the angels and the shepherds and all the, all the things, the innkeeper and the manger and all these that we're familiar with it. It's very, very familiar. Uh, but as I have studied scripture this week and have prayed and sought to be in God's presence and to meditate upon his word, I've just been so impressed with God's word that even in this very familiar story of Christmas, that there are indeed basic things that are not only edifying, which that word edifying means to build up or to make stronger. It's not only building up and making stronger our faith, but we'll also see today some very basic movements, you might say, of our faith that if missed, cause a very unsightly theological movement in the same way that a martial arts student will be rather unsightly as they go up for the first time to try that very technical Movement. So our goal this morning is very simple, is to see those very basic things, to be edified in our faith, and also to see where maybe when we miss some of these most basic things, that it can result in something that is totally, totally off. So in Luke chapter 1, we come to verse 1. Hopefully you're there in your Bible. And we know, of course, that God used Luke to write this. In verse 1 we read, Inasmuch as many have taken into hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding from all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed." Uh, so if you remember back when we started a long time ago now in the, book, in the book of Acts, God also used Luke to write the book of Acts, and he was also addressing it there in the greeting to his friend named Theophilus. So for all of us young families, the next one of us that has a boy, somebody ought to take dibs on Theophilus. It's a strong-sounding name, and we could even call the little boy Theo. It's even a cute name. There's great names in Scripture, and Theophilus is one of them, this friend of Luke. And we understand that Luke, to be, he was a physician. So it is thought that maybe perhaps Theophilus was maybe one of Luke's patients. We don't know that, but it's a potential. And that's who this is addressed to in the very greeting as it's going forth from there. Verse 5, we read and it says, There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias, 
of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Now you'll remember last week we talked about Herod, Herod the Great as he was known as. We understand him as we've said many times from this pulpit that he was a not very nice guy. In fact, he came from a long line of of a family that were all very bloodthirsty. The only really positive thing that he was ever really known for was that he built great big buildings that were usable and beautiful and whatever else. But he was known as Herod the Great and he was very paranoid we know of him. In fact, we've also mentioned this before, that it was said of Herod in those days by the subjects in the kingdom that he ruled that it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was his own son. That gives you an indication of how bloodthirsty, just how paranoid this Herod was. But this week we're introduced not just to Herod, but also to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Go ahead and show that picture, guys. We have a picture depicting Zacharias there, of course, holding what we understand to be John the Baptist and his wife, Elizabeth. Now, the things that we could appreciate about this picture is that it depicts them being, as the Bible puts it, well advanced in years. You see this picture, and if you didn't know anything about it, you might think to yourself, those are proud grandparents holding their grandson or granddaughter. You can't tell, obviously, with being a baby, but they're well advanced in years. They're older folks. Uh, The Bible says that they were both of priestly descent. We understand this to be about them. We understand the Bible says that they were righteous. Now, some people come across this and say, well, this says that they were righteous, and then Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We understand there to be scripturally none righteous, no, not one. And, of course, it gives us the understanding they come from a priestly descent. They were not righteous in the standpoint that they were sinless. They were righteous in the standpoint that they observed the things of God's word. They were, you might think of Moses, and that they were adherents to the Old Testament commandments, and they were righteous in this kind of way. And you kind of get the picture about Zacharias and Elizabeth as you study the scriptures that they seem as though they were sweet folks. Uh, They were both of priestly descent. He was serving as a priest. And we read more of what takes place in in verse 8. So look there now. And it says, So it was that while he, Zacharias, was serving as priest before God in the order of his division... According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of incense. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Now if you could take your timeline of redemptive history and zoom the lens out quite a bit i want us just to see the backdrop from which this all begins to occur Uh, there had been approximately 400 years where there had been no revelation of god from the conclusion of the old testament to the beginning as we see here of the new testament bible scholars call it the 400 years of silence say yes if 400 years is a while yes 400 years is a bit of a time Not only do you have this 400 years of silence that the people have endured, but you also have Herod, who is an awful king. And it turns out he was not actually a descendant of Jacob, who we know to be Israel. Uh, He was a descendant of Israel's brother, who we know to be Esau. This is Herod, who is the descendant of Esau. He's a terrible king. He's not even technically of Israel's descent. 
we then have the tyrannical rule of Rome that has their thumb on top of all of everything that's happening in the backdrop of all this. And the icing on the cake of all of this whole terrible situation is Elizabeth is postpartum and has no children. Uh, she and her husband are well advanced in years and they have no children. But then the events begin to happen that unfold this amazing Christmas story that we have decided to experience as close as we can in the scriptures this year. Uh, it is said that in those days during that time that there were approximately 20,000 priests that the lots would be drawn from. We don't know exactly what it means for them to have drawn lots. It was kind of a drawing straws, or for some of you young people, rock, paper, scissors kind of an ordeal, where it's a, it's a thing of chance to determine who serves when, where, and it would have been probably, maybe perhaps, a once-in-a-lifetime event that Zacharias would be able to go in and minister to the Lord in the way in which the Scriptures are describing to us. So you have this terrible, terrible backdrop, and then these beautiful things are all beginning to unfold, and it starts with the lot falling to Zacharias to go and minister to the Lord. So I don't have words as I commonly do. We'll probably keep this going for this month as we show these pictures of these characters that we're going through as we're experiencing Christmas. But something that you could definitely write down and take to the bank is that even when all seemed dark, and this is the first thing that we see as a very basic elementary understanding of our faith that is definitely edifying for us, is that even when all seemed dark, God was at work behind the scenes, wasn't he? Even with 400 years of silence, even with a postmenopausal woman, even with this once-in-a-lifetime, all these things, and Herod who's terrible, and Rome who's tyrannical, and all these things, God was at work behind the scenes, ready to bring about this great, great promise of Christmas. So I just want to relate this to all of us in a very simplistic way that we might be edified, because there might be much in your life right now that could seem dark. I know that many of you deal with adult, unsaved children, and that can seem like something of darkness. I want to remind you this morning, don't forget that God could be at work behind the scenes that is totally, that you're oblivious to that. Uh, it could be that you, you don't know what God has kept up those adult, unbelieving children with in the night. You don't know the way in which the Holy Spirit could be drawing them. We pray for them. We seek to minister to them in any way we can. But you don't know that regardless of whatever backdrop of darkness there is, there's a God in heaven who is able to oversee these things. Uh, whether it's an issue in your family or even in your health, and I don't want to at all paint a picture that God is always going to answer these things with everything that we want. Sometimes it is the case, as it was for Paul, that his grace will be sufficient for us through whatever trial it is that God will decide not to remove from our lives. Uh, but we need to remember, even in this state in which we're in, even in the governmental situation in which we're in, that very much is beginning to mimic that of Rome. We need to remember that even though there can be a backdrop of darkness that indeed there is a God who can do things behind the scenes that we may not always notice. It says in Psalm 121 verses 1 to 4, it says, I will lift up my, my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. That's good news if it is, say amen. That the God that we love and serve, he does not slumber nor sleep. So if you're thankful 
for a sovereign king in heaven who never slumbers or sleeps, who's able to do all these things behind the scenes, unbeknownst to us in it with it happening, now's a good time to say amen. And we will move on. Look to verse 13. Zacharias has now gone into the temple, into this place of worship, and he sees the angel. And it says, but the angel said to him, verse 13, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before them, before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to children and of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, and you who, sta- who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you to bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. So this angel, Gabriel, who is one of three angels that are mentioned by name in Scripture, uh, is actually who my son is named after, Gabriel. And we certainly pray that many of these noble, stately-type characteristics would become true of my beloved's little son, Gabriel. And those of you that know him well know exactly what I'm talking about as we, as we love him dearly. But boy, is he a handful. Jesus, help me. All right. Uh, the second thing that we could definitely say is a very simplistic, basic thing on the edification of our faith uh, is that we ought to believe God even when we are stumped by his plans. I believe that Zacharias would say that. Uh, If you are a true Christian and you are a child of God, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you struggle with sin and there's sin that you are seeking to put to death and perhaps even it's a sin that haunted you when you were a non-believer and it's something that the flesh still struggles with and you're seeking to put the sin to death but it's powerful and it's strong and, and it continues to win victory over you and you continue to struggle, continue to seek to put to death this sin and you begin to have these thoughts in your heart if I, real Christians wouldn't so struggle with something that's have such power over them. I just want to remind you, again, this we're speaking of true Christians, those who have truly repented of faith and the conversion of their heart is genuine and legitimate. I want to remind you of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For the believer who struggles with these things and you think, I mean, I just don't know if God would allow me into heaven because I struggle with these kinds of things. And, 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 and you begin to have these doubts about a true, authentic, legitimate conversion. Hear me and hear me clearly. If you ought to question your faith and you don't know if it's legitimate or not, that's worth questioning and looking at very seriously. I'm speaking now to the children of God that struggle and struggle terribly with putting to death maybe a particular sin or a whole host of them. God has said that he will cleanse you. It's him that's faithful. It's him that will be the one to forgive you. 
You may not understand perfectly how he's going to do that. It may not be perfectly understood in your intellect of just how good and gracious and benevolent his heart is to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But listen to me now. If he has said it, if that is his plan to cleanse his children of all unrighteousness, because he's faithful, we ought to believe him. Say amen. We ought to believe him. We ought to believe God even when we're stumped by his good plan for the non-christian and i probably could think of a number of people who would fall in this category that think to themselves well sometimes they'll say things that don't even make sense they'll say well god doesn't know god could never forgive me for the things that i've done and some in some cases you'll hear people that are ex-military personnel say this kind of thing and and they'll have this thought as if as if his blood isn't powerful enough listen to what it is that isaiah 118 18 says, it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like like crimson, they shall be as wool. Dear friend, if you are not a believer and you have things that are holding you back, thinking that God could not forgive you for whatever it was you've done, you're thinking on a basis of something that isn't true though your sins be like scarlet the scriptures say they shall be made white as snow for those that repent and turn and trust the savior Uh, consider a moment again that we ought to believe god even when we are stumped by his you don't understand that god could forgive whatever heinous thing it is that you think that you've done dear friend you don't know the power of his blood you don't know the power of his sinlessness you don't know the it, it No matter what you've done, he's trumped that in his perfect, sinless, perfect, holy, righteous standing before God that he stands ready to clothe you in should you repent and trust fully in the Savior. I feel the Holy Spirit encouraging me to preach to you this morning. Uh, Consider for a moment even the trials that you and I might face. And we think to ourselves, uh, let me just ask by show of hands for a second. Uh, How many of you have struggled in something, whatever it might be, and you have this thought for a moment that the, that, the re, that the suffering is pointless or useless. If you've had a thought like that, let me see your hands. Some kind of suffering, some kind of trial that you've been to think, what's the purpose or reason for this? Listen to what it is that James 1-2 says. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. You and I might not understand exactly how God's going to produce patience in us based on the trials in which we fall, but we ought to believe God in his word. Amen. He is worth believing in all of these things. And the result, as we'll see, look now to verse 21. The result of Zacharias not believing in God, obviously shortchanged Zacharias' joy much, and there were some repercussions for it. 21 verse, it says, And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he had come out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. And so it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Uh, So not only was his joy obviously greatly shortchanged as a result of his unbelief of this good news that the angel of God had brought to him. But there were also some consequences to go alongside it, and, and maybe just perhaps a little bit embarrassing for Zacharias, that the angel one-upped him. Did you see that in the scripture when we went through it? Uh, the angel gives this wonderful announcement of what is going to happen, that this John character, he says, name him John, he's going to be a prophet, he's going to be mightily favored of God, all these things. And then Zacharias says, well, I'm an old man. 
and then gives some rationale of why he, this thing could not be so. And then Gabriel says, and I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. <laughs> so you see how Zacharias got one-upped by the angel himself. And I just hope that you see that of Zacharias' sin nature, that there's a tendency inside of all of us that is remnant of this sin nature, that yes, the power of has been broken, but this, it's something of our flesh that we put to death of, is, is the tendency to not believe God in his miraculous works. As was the case for Zacharias, and that remains inside of all of us. We ought to be aware of that so that we might put that sin to death. I heard this great story this week, and as far as I understand, it's a true story. It was a liberal-type seminary in Sweden, and uh, liberal in its theology and its thinking, and, and always giving themselves over to the diminishing of God's miraculous work because they could not intellectually understand some of the things in Scripture. In the courtyard outside the student union of this particular liberal uh, the, uh, theological school, this seminary, there was a young student, a freshman, who was sitting there reading his Bible with just a gleaming smile on his face. And after reading a while, he stands up and he says, Hallelujah, God is awesome. Isn't he wonderful? And one of the professors who sees this and thinks it's a little, a little odd goes up to him and asks him what it is that he's reading. And the student with jubilation says, well, I've just been reading about the exodus of God's children out of Egypt and, and how the Egyptians, the enemy of God's people, were pursuing them and they come up to the border of the Red Sea and, and God by His power parted the Red Sea that the children of God could walk safely through on dry ground and, and all the representation of Christ doing that for us and how wonderful it is and how glorious that is. Hallelujah, God is awesome. And then the professor in his typical stately kind of way, and says, well, there's, there's been some debate on that, and, and the thinking is that perhaps the time of year in which the Israelites came up to the Red Sea, that based on the currents of the wind and the tides and all these things, that it might have only been as little as five inches of water that God parted, so maybe it's not as miraculous as you think it was. And then the student kind of got the perplexed look on their face, and Look back down at his Bible and then he says, Hallelujah, God is awesome. He is wonderful and mighty of all his works. And the professor looking at him a little strangely and then the student says, God was able to drown the entire Egyptian army in five inches of water. Uh, let us church, let us have the childlike faith that believes God even in the things that we don't perfectly understand, even when we're stumped by his good and awesome plans. Verse 24. It says, Now after, the days, after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. It has been considered over the decades, over these centuries now, how all these, all these years, of exactly why it was that Elizabeth hid herself away. Some people say it was a thing of shame. I don't think so. Uh, she hid herself away for the first five months, which if you think of the clothing in which they would have worn in those days, uh, were very loose-fitting. She hid herself, herself away when it would have been easiest to hide her pregnancy. And then she comes out when she's out to hear pregnant. <laughs> And uh, so it seems to me as if Elizabeth re re draws herself away in a similar kind of way in which Jesus did commonly to spend time with the Lord in prayer and thanksgiving. It's, it's best as I can tell what is taking place there. 
Uh, one's fertility was highly championed in those days. So for a woman to be Elizabeth's age and not have any children was something of a reproach. And this is why she says, the Lord has taken away my reproach among people. She was certainly grateful for what was transpiring. So these basic things that we've seen that could edify and build us up in our Christian faith is that even when all seems dark, God is definitely at work behind the scenes. And boys, they're much dark in our world, amen? There's a lot dark, there's a lot going that shouldn't be going the way it is, and we just need to remember that the last thing we should lose is hope because we know that God is working behind the scenes. And I think that Zacharias would probably tell us to believe God even when we indeed are stumped by his good and awesome plan. Now look to verse 26. And if all of the timeline of this story were a movie, the screen would go black and it would say six months later, okay? Because then we dive back in at verse 26, and it says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. We talked about Joseph last week. Of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called Son of God. Now indeed... Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So now we're introduced to Mary, someone we're probably pretty familiar with. Go ahead and show that next picture, guys. Uh, We have a depiction of Mary... Something that we could appreciate about this picture is that it depicts her being young. Some Bible scholars even say perhaps even as young as 13 or 14 years old. Perhaps. Another thing that could be appreciated about this picture is that it shows Jesus laying in a stone carved out feed trough. Uh, Many of the Christmas cards that we send and the depictions that we see circulating around the Christmas season has a manger that looks something suspiciously like a baby crib. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, That would definitely have not been the case. And the reason is, is because wooden mangers would have soaked up too much animal urine. Okay. If you raise livestock, you know what your mangers, you know what those watering tanks and feed troughs are made out of. They're made out of rubber or plastic so that they don't soak up all of the animal urine in the stall. Okay. Not to be gross, not to gross anybody out, but that is the case. And for that same reason, they didn't make them out of wood. They made them out of stone. The original word is called fotney. And it was made out of stone so that it could be cleaned out and it could be used for a very long time. This is much more likely what it is that Jesus would have been laid in. Uh, Mary, we talked of last week, her and Joseph, this young family, they were not particularly wealthy. In fact, some would consider them poor. Uh, based on the offering that we know that they brought and the 
later in this gospel. Mary is from a place called Nazareth. Uh, If you and I were to describe Nazareth, we would use words like podunk, or perhaps that's two words, but uh, you could think of it as a podunk kind of place. That's what Nazareth was like. In fact, I remember having driving home one year. I was going to seminary, and long story short, was driving home, and this state patrol officer zooms past me super fast and a quarter mile up, blocks the highway. So I was no longer to be able to carry on my merry way on 71. I had to get off and go through the hills of northeastern Kentucky. And I remember thinking to myself, because we had recently studied some of the geographical areas of Scripture, and I remember thinking through my head some of the podunk kind of places of Scripture that much likely resembled much of northeastern Kentucky, minus the moonshine, marijuana, and shotguns. But that's... (laughs) And, And yet, Mary, being this young from a podunk, not very wealthy place, and she nor is wealthy herself, is yet highly favored, the Scriptures say. Uh, when you watch someone go up to attempt a very technical movement in martial arts for the very first time and they fall on their rear end, you'll know that something broke down in the basic movements, obviously. Uh, when you see churches, preachers, teachers, and those that sit under such preaching that give themselves to something that is just completely off from the message of the Bible, you can undoubtedly know that something of the basics were missing. And here's what I mean by that. You think of the notion that is stronger in other places of the world and yet sadly growing with increasing strength in America, something that could be known as the prosperity gospel. The message, the notion that it is God's plan for your life to be to have a life of ease and definitely of wealth. And to not have those things is to have messed up and done something wrong. Uh, the thing I'll, is in my heart to tell you this morning is that prosperity is not the measure of God's favor, nor is it the theme of Scripture. And these notions are growing with an, an increased intensity in our world today, particularly in America and even here in Licking County and surrounding areas. This prosperity gospel that preachers sell under this pretense, come to Jesus, he'll fix all your problems. Come to Jesus and he'll make you rich. Come to Jesus and he'll make you healthy. Uh, Very sad to see the state. You see it totally off. And you think to yourself, okay, they've missed something so basic as the notion that this girl, Mary, who we could probably make a pretty good scriptural argument to say that she is perhaps the most favored woman of all time, she was neither having a life of ease nor riches. And they've missed something so incredibly basic. Now, what I'm not talking about here is true biblical principles for money and finance. And the scriptures tell us much about that. And I'm not talking about that. For example, of what I'm not talking about is when Proverbs, when it tells us that the diligent shall be made rich. Newsflash, New Covenant Community Church, if you show up on time, you work hard, and you know how to tell the truth, you're probably going to prosper more than the people that don't do those things. Helpful? Okay, say yes if that's helpful. No surprise. Thank you, Jesus, for such clear instruction in your word. And then in some cases, God does give people a certain financial advantage for a divine purpose. You think of Joseph, not as in the the husband of Mary, but as in son of Jacob, Joseph, when he was in Egypt. Very clear that even while that boy was in prison, God blessed his hand in all that Joseph did, and it was very clearly for 
a divine purpose. But to sell this notion that, that to be in the favor of God and to be living an obedient Christian life means that he absolutely will, will give you a life of ease and of riches, this prosperity gospel, it is false and it utterly departs from the message of Scripture, which is salvation and not that of an easy life and riches. You take Mary that we've already talked about or even John the Baptist who we know to be the greatest prophet of all time. He also did not experience a life of ease nor riches and yet he was the greatest prophet of all time. Uh, so what are we to do at New Covenant Community Church? We are to read the scriptures. I'm convinced and I'm convinced fully that if somebody has a steady diet of the scriptures and believes them, uh, that the prosperity gospel will always look utterly foolish because you know what the scriptures teach and you're not just following along with what's... And it's no wonder that these ministries are packed with people because they're selling everything that the sinful heart desires. Do you see it? If you do, please say yes. Uh, be wise in these things. And, and this, us understanding this does not make, give us a high horse upon which to ride it, it compels us to humility and wanting to show people the scriptures and to show people. And I used to think that and maybe there are people that are simply deceived in this kind of thing, just thinking that that is what church and the Christian faith is all about. But as, as I've matured in my faith, I'm just beginning to think that maybe people that submit themselves to that kind of teaching want the same thing that the false preacher wants. And it's not God. It's wealth. And it's the God that they've created in their own mind that serves them. Dear friends, that is not what the scripture teaches. That kind of theology is not found in the Bible, and it's rampant. It's even rampant, not far from here. There's more on my heart that I want to share about that, but let us move on as we continue on. As we celebrate this wonderful Christmas season, dear church, think not to yourself, my bank account isn't very full, therefore God must have not have prospered me, prospered me this year. Don't think that. Uh, don't think to yourself, I didn't come from much and therefore I will not amount to much. Think not to yourself, I don't have nice clothes and I'm definitely marginalized for my faith. Think not that those things are the measure for which God has prospered you because arguably the most favored woman of all time and the greatest prophet of all time also experienced those same exact things. Let it be enough for us to magnify the name of Christ irrespective of all the nonsense of foolishness preaching that has to do with all of this prosperity gospel. This Christmas we are celebrating the greatest promise of all time. Amen. We are celebrating the Jesus that has come to be Emmanuel for the purpose of our sin and that's definitely good news. Look to verse 39 however and this is not the only way in which we see an entire theological movement be rebuked by simple Mary out of Podunk Nazareth. It's not the only theological movement that we see that somebody people have missed something so basic verse 39 it says now mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to the city of judah and entered the house of zacharias and greeted elizabeth and it happened when elizabeth heard the greeting of mary that the babe leaped in her womb and elizabeth was filled with the holy spirit then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb with joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from 
the Lord. So you have this picture in your mind of Mary going to greet Elizabeth, and you have this elderly lady and this very, very young woman, and you think, okay, this young girl is pregnant of, the whole, of God's spirit, and of course, what it says something perhaps of their relationship. We know they were relatives, but it also perhaps says something of Elizabeth's spiritual maturity that, that Mary was drawn to go to her in that season, being pregnant, again, not of a man. And then Mary's response comes to us in song format. Uh, in each line, I wish I had time to study this with you in detail, each line of this song, Mary's song as it might be notated in your Bible, uh, it tells us something about Mary's knowledge of the Old Testament because each and every single line, almost verbatim or a very close echo of other scriptures in the Old Testament in every account. It tells us at a very bare minimum understanding that Mary was very, very familiar with the old scriptures. I'd love to go through with it all with you. Uh, verse 46, it says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. We're just going to see the first couple lines of her song here. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. So we're just going to take a survey real briefly here of Mary's theology that we get from under, just reading 2.5 verses of this Mary song that was her response to this thing that her relative Elizabeth said about the Savior being in her womb. We know that Mary saw her soul as something that magnified the Lord. She magnified the Lord. And very clear that she, she was not the one being magnified, but it was her soul magnifying the Lord. If you understand, say yes. It says also that she rejoiced in God my Savior, she says. Uh, who is it that needs a Savior? A sinner. Uh, there's, we'll talk more in a moment. Uh, she saw herself as a lowly maidservant. Do you see the picture of Mary? Young girl, podunk town, familiar with the scriptures, soul-magnifying God, rejoicing in God her Savior, seeing herself as a lowly maidservant. The, the original language, the words that she uses, you can't get any lower than the servant that she saw herself, that she was describing herself as. So here's another thing that you could write down and take to the bank. If you were to write a sentence about describing Mary, it would be that Mary was a blessed servant-hearted, God-glorifying, Savior-rejoicing sinner. Understand if you do say yes. That is so clear from the Scriptures. And yet, there's an entire movement of our day called the Catholic understanding of the Scriptures. And they'll come up with terms like co-redemptrix or co-mediatrix or immaculate conception. And these words mean something. This co-redemptics it's the understanding that it was not just Jesus but it was also the sacrifice of Mary that saves you and I even down to the point that some of their art will depict Mary also hanging on a cross uh, this term this phrase co-mediatrics it's that that Mary is the mediator also in conjunction with Christ of being a mediator between us and God uh, this immaculate conception many times people think this has to do something with the conception of Jesus those that ascribe to this false theology would say that Immaculate Conception has something to do with Mary's conception. They believe that Mary was kept back from original sin, meaning that Romans 3.23 would not apply to Mary, that she could be seen as indeed sinless. Now listen to me. 
I'm not mad at anybody about these things, but uh, these notions simply are not in Scripture. Uh, You can say that they are, you can think it'd be nice to believe that they are, but these Catholic understandings, as is the case with purgatory and the works-based righteousness that they preach, is not found in the Scriptures. That doesn't give us a high horse to ride upon. It doesn't make us smarter or more intellectual than anybody else. It simply compels us to humility of showing people the scriptures and to understand because you think to yourself, man, how do they get so far off? It's to miss something as simple as what Mary said in the first two and a half verses of her song as a response to what it is that Elizabeth said to her, that she is the one that magnifies God, that she is the one that could be seen as a lowly maid servant and magnified her savior. Do you see it, church? Again, I hope you see it. Not looking to step on anybody's toes, but I want more than anything to be scriptural and to be right. And I'm more concerned with truth than anything else here in this pulpit. And the Catholic understanding just isn't right. So look for an opportunity to show them the scriptures. Hopefully they will listen to you prayerfully. They will listen to you and see that these things that they believe in are not the truth. Now, if you want to honor this, you think of Mary and all that... She was this young girl from this town. Um, to, if you want to talk to the Catholic friend that believes in all these things, um, tell them to do what Mary did. See, Jesus is the Savior. Let your soul magnify God, not her. She's the lowly maidservant. She said so herself. But if, you want, if you want to honor the, the name and the memory of Mary, don't pray to her. Pray to God. See, Jesus is the one that is your Savior, not that of Mary, not worth praying to. She's in the same boat of all of us in that regard. And this notion just brings a thought to mind as as we get ready to close this service. I just wonder for a moment if, and this is not the case, this will not be the case, but where my imaginative mind goes is, is what would happen if we could let Zacharias, Elizabeth, and Mary close out our service today? What perhaps would be the things that they would say. I'd just be so curious to be able to hand Zacharias a microphone, wouldn't it? And I just wonder if he would say, well, he wouldn't say anything until God opened his tongue again, but I just wonder if he would say something along the lines of, believe God. If God in his word has said it, your, it being true is not dependent upon you understanding it. The old man and the old woman can have a baby church. I just wonder if he could pass the microphone then to Elizabeth and she might say, you know, that was a dark time. Herod was a brat. Rome was awful. And I was postmenopausal. Some of you ladies, say amen, please. And, and, and the backdrop was dark. But the greatest promise, the first messianic promise ever in, in Genesis 3, all the events were getting ready to unfold. So don't let any dark backdrop of your life rob this and steal the hope that there's a sovereign God in heaven who loves you who's able to make these things come about in his own timing and it's not dependent upon me being of a fertile age I would love to hear some of the encouragement that Elizabeth might give us and it'd be awesome to hear when she passes the microphone as we get ready to close the service what Mary might say I just think she might just say exactly what she already said. My soul and your soul should magnify. It should be like a big magnifying glass to show the world how good and awesome God is. 
And He is our Savior. There is none beside Him that stands as them, that awesome Savior. And I, the most blessed woman of all, should be seen as a lowly maidservant underneath the service of God. Can you imagine at church in your mind the things that they just might say to us? Would you please stand with me? I want us to give us the opportunity as we experience Christmas, as we have surveyed these characters of this story that we know well, and we see some things basically that are edifying for our church in a, base, in a basic way of our faith, and also some other very basic elementary things that if missed, if not believed in the scriptures, can result in very unsightly theological movements of our day. This should compel us to humility and an overwhelming desire for people to see the true God, not the one they have made in their minds. Amen. I'm thankful for this very familiar story and the things that we've seen from it. And in the spirit of all this, because I believe it would be in step with the response of these people whom God cho chose to use, is that we would end this service by simply singing together. Guys, could you show us those lyrics? Praise God from...